croquetting better uses out of our surplus school sites. This week, we're joined by WARDF trustee Michael Jans to talk about surplus school sites. We'll also talk about a little-known power of public school boards to levy new taxes. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 115. Sorry, we're late this time. I've blamed it on Mac in the past. This one was 100% my fault. But, you know, we've thrown in a new guest, so call it even. As a bonus, we'll even throw in a rapid fire segment. No charge. The city of Edmonton has activated its cold weather protocol, which includes two dedicated Edmonton transit bus routes that will run overnight between emergency shelters, transit centers, and several other locations in the city to ensure transportation isn't a barrier for anyone needing to seek shelter. With a focus on helping get people to where they need to go, administration is currently working on a plan to establish a one-bus dedicated route between Mike Nichols' house, a MIME training facility, and the Integrity Commissioner's office, before terminating at a resounding mayoral loss. A bereft Jason Kenney hot off another sharp decline in his approval rating due to his endorsement of open-pit coal mining, was spotted drunk in in Edmonton defaulting back to the tried-and-true conservative way of drumming up public support, emulating Ralph Klein. He could be seen in the lobby of an Edmonton homeless shelter berating the patrons and promised that in a few years he would throw money on the floor at them, but because of the disastrous NDP deficit, cuts had to be made. The federal government has designated the Proud Boys as a terrorist organization in Canada. Wanting to understand the impact of extremism in local communities, they have solicited lists of other groups that may be considered regional terror organizations. Not understanding the prompt, Ward 12 Councillor Mo Banga submitted Dedmonton Haunted House as a potential terror organization. Because last time he was there, he was really scared, man. (laughs) I was mean on the drive home. (laughs) Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this episode is brought to you by Searching for Izena, a special nine-part podcast series from YWCA Edmonton, Parody Yegg, and several current and former Edmonton city councillors. Searching for Izena, Unwomanly Stories of Female Leadership at Edmonton City Hall spotlights the untold story of Izena Ross, Edmonton's first female counselor, and the 30 other women who followed in her footsteps in the last 100 years. Co-hosts Stacey Brotzel and Kim Ann Wilson will also uncover the political barriers that have yet to be broken, even in 2021. The first episode is called Part 1, Number 30 and 31, and profiles the political journeys of Number 30 and Number 31, Councillors Esslinger and Hamilton, Edmonton's two current female councillors. You'll hear about why they ran, being called the C-word, and why they relish talking drainage with the best of them. You can find Searching for Izena wherever you find your podcast, or you can head over to searchingforizena.com. To start off the show, we've got Michael Jans, trustee for Ward F and rumored Papasteo candidate. We'll get to that. You know, we try not to get into public school issues because it gets really close to provincial issues. But we saw something that was really interesting from an Edmonton taxpayer perspective. And that was that the school board would potentially be doing something unprecedented to our recollection and levying a special tax to raise more money specifically for Edmonton Public Schools. So we'll get into that. We'll get into some surplus school sites. Michael Jans, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Did you like how I snuck in that uh, you're a Papasteo candidate? Uh, Because I had already leaked that information on Twitter. Uh, So is this a confirmation by you not objecting to it? 
Uh, I haven't had a chance to object to it. I, I am not a candidate for anything. I still have another 10 months in my term. And uh, I have to say, as an incumbent, it's it's very hard to continue to do the job still and have uh, every second question be about uh, the next municipal election 10 months away. I mean, I uh, um, even the first time, the very first time I ran for school board, I didn't even declare until May. So Apart from speaking municipally listeners, for the most part, I don't think a lot of people are thinking about the municipal election. It's not front of mind. And, you know, it's a long way away. So even even incumbent councillor Ben Henderson uh, hasn't declared his intention one way or another. So despite what CBC would have you believe. Yeah. 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 I just I wish we had a few more months just to kind of do the work and then we could all jump into it. I was frustrated that the UCP bumped the uh, nomination period all the way all the way back to January. I think it just puts us into silly season too soon. And I still think we have some really important work ahead of us. So let's focus on that. Okay, fine, fine. So let's talk about actual city council uh, in the city of Edmonton. They were talking about surplus school sites this week. And we've long talked about and debated surplus school sites as, you know, we have these extra sites that were planned to be schools, never turned into schools, or they were schools, but then because we have the mature neighborhood overlay and we don't allow families to live in the core of our city. All the family is vacated because the old people needed their front setbacks. All these reasons that we've had in the past for we have some extra school sites and we want to do useful things with them. Put affordable housing on the lots, turn them into green spaces, turn them into mixed use developments, all these things that we have grappled with what we should actually do with that. And it came back to council in a meaningful way. Yeah, so executive committee looked at this, and I think the reason this really came up was about um, the policy that outlines what the city can do with the f- the sale of surplus sites and what the funds can be used for. Currently, the policy states that they have to be basically spent in the same plan area as the surplus school site that was sold. So, for example, there are 25 surplus school building sites on the inventory for the city currently. Um, There's a whole bunch of other ones that are future sites that could be considered in the future or sold. We couldn't sell all of those and then build uh, affordable housing in other parts of the city where it makes the most sense unless we change this policy. And that was one of the reasons that this came up. Um, Also, a more specific uh, site, I think in Rattler it was, Sky Rattler, is that the name of it? And uh, and it's going to council next week um, with a, a minor recommendation around that. But I know, Michael, you wrote about surplus school sites recently. You've been thinking about this from the point of view of uh, private schools. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. So first of all, I think um, you you summarize it quite well. And uh, I did write on this and it's been a, a, a bone of contention for at least since uh, 2016, but I'll even go back to 2010. So in 2010, I, myself, Dave Colburn, Sarah Hoffman, and a number of school trustees were elected on a platform of uh, trying to find creative solutions, not school closures. And through this dialogue, we had uh, chaired uh, a community revitalization task force by Michael Fair. This is back in the Mendel years. And we had a number of recommendations from the school board with our moratorium on school closures. And we all committed that we wanted to bring more families back into mature neighborhoods. We wanted to see more revitalization. We didn't want to see further school closures. So uh, we were moving in that direction. And then it kind of caught us off guard in 2016. I was board chair at the time, and I learned in the paper that two private schools were Uh, the city was in talks to sell them to pieces of surplus school land. Now, at first, you may think, well, what's the big deal? It's surplus to your use. You're not going to have a school there. But there are other schools in the area. And we had never contemplated in our agreement with the city that if we were going to be turning over a surplus school site, 
that it wouldn't be anything but green space or housing. We didn't expect that it would be handed over to a competing education institution that might actually end up causing school closures by further dividing and eroding children from the neighborhood and pulling them into more places. So it actually could have a cascading effect if we were adding in um, American-style privatization and creating a two-tier education system in our communities, which uh, which was not the intent at all. So we had a quite an animated response in 2016, and uh, Don Evison and City Council pulled back the sale and explained they didn't want to do it and uh, um, gave us assurances that that wouldn't be the case, but then jumped forward a few years, and uh, um, one of those sites has now sold to a private school. So we are... Uh, uh, I moved a motion at the board that we we open up a renegotiation of the joint use agreement because our interpretation was that, and our, and our chair, Trish Estabrook, spoke very eloquently at city council about how this is a violation of the spirit of the joint use agreement. And the councillors, I think, were sympathetic to that argument, but they said, you know, they 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 felt that um, they didn't have they didn't have a a uh, um, a clear legal lever to to say no to that sale to say no to that private school. So. Uh, we're requesting that we actually renegotiate the JUA to make it clear that appropriate uses of surplus school sites are are not competing education jurisdictions that'll further cause school closures and undermine the vision of the city plan. This reminds me a lot of the constant struggle we have downtown, where there have been restrictive covenants on grocery store locations where a grocery store will close, but a restrictive covenant will prevent another grocery store from opening in that building. Granted, uh, I don't know that the analog is quite there because public schooling is a public good and everyone should have it. But it does sound like you want something similar to the Sobeys concoction where surplus school sites are public school use only for schools or another use that is not schooling at all. Am I getting that roughly correct? Um, roughly, yeah. It's not an exact uh, um, analog, but uh, the idea is that if we look at the city, we sh- we agree that there should be there should be schools, there should be uh, housing. We should have certain things in the city plan that we've all we all have agreed to. And when we have these these parcels of land that are open and available and are and are going to be surplus use. What is the best thing we can do aligned with our, our challenges and our needs with them? And we believe it isn't a further competing education institution. It should be housing. It should be green spaces. It should be these other items that the mayor has talked about that could bring vibrancy and actually strengthen the nearby schools. We know at some point, especially if we're going to achieve the goals of the city plan and get to 2 million people in our existing boundaries, we're probably going to need more schools. We're probably going to need to make sure that the schools we have can be kept open and become receiving schools again. So um, we don't want to be penny wise, pound foolish and make a decision today when we're short for money to sell some. Once you sell land, you can never get it back. Can you just explain for me and for listeners, like, why would it be considered surplus? Like, what are the reasons that make a school site deemed surplus? And and why would it be deemed surplus for the public school board, but not for a private school? Yeah. So, um, first of all, public schools are, are at private schools are completely, completely separate. I mean, private schools can, uh, can accept and reject children. They control their enrollment. They are uh, functionally like a chapter. It's not a public library. On the other hand, public schools have to accept all of the children 
designated to them, no matter what their their wealth, their age, their their parental education level, anything else. There's no right. uh, th- the public school exists for everybody the same way the library does. So by law, every neighborhood has a designated public school. What happens sometimes is when the neighborhood was built since 1994, province, the province of Alberta just allocates when we get new schools. We can't control ourselves when we build them or not anymore. So there's areas where we may have in the like a long time ago got a neighborhood school, but not anymore. Now the, the model is more uh, larger, bigger, 900 to 1200 size uh, student schools. Think more like Johnny Bright, Nestor Starkman, less maybe Oliver. And so uh, as a result, there's fewer schools and they're larger in other places. So um, as a result, there's some pieces of land where the province will never build us a school for two or 300 children, even if the land was allocated for it. They're going to find a spot where they could parcel us a nine to 1200 uh, student school. And uh, so that's that's kind of just the way education shifted. It's that bigger more of a Terwilliger rec center, less of a right. less of a scone scone pool kind of model. Just like our rec centers, exactly. mega centers. Yeah, bigger the bigger bells and whistles, everything. So as a result, um, we do have some small portions of of land, and traditionally the community has been told this land is supposed to be a school. If not, it's green space. Yeah. So the community sometimes has got used to it as green space, used it as green space. There's a number of places where surplus sites have been used as drainage ponds. There's been other really important community uses for them. Does does that help answer your question? Yeah, I think so. And, and I think what I'm understanding about the situation is, that, you know, in contrast to rec centers, where they are largely, you know, decided where they're going to go funded and operated by one entity, the city of Edmonton, school sites are, you know, the land is assembled by the city, the school board says we need a school and the province decides whether or not they're actually going to build one. So there's three orders of government essentially involved in, in making that happen. Is that right? Yeah. And it's kind of like just because the community hadn't put up a playground yet, if a private playground company came in and put up a fence and bought the land and then put up their private playground center and then made you you know, pay money to get into it, but didn't let you in if you had special needs. <laughs> okay. I think we'll let that just speak for itself. As it as it should. That's the reality of education today. We're getting into a system where the local public school has to accept all children regardless of how supported they've been, regardless if they've had access to lear- early learning, regardless of the level of wealth of the family. The public school is here for everyone and we do our best to support everyone. We have this other model where there's some schools in Alberta which literally have their own stables for horses and are charging 25000 plus a year. And they're still getting public funding in Alberta from the government, and yet this happens nowhere else. So it really it's a question of going back to who is Edmonton for? Who are we building our city for? How do we support one another? And, and what is the best possible thing we could do in the face of climate change, child poverty, everything else? What should we be doing with the precious few square feet of land we have? And are surplus school sites better destined for community purpose or for a competing private school. So let's talk a bit about that funding piece, because like you said, you know, private schools, they get some of that public funding on top of tuition and on top of whatever fees they might choose to levy. And it has, I think it's fair to say, left the public school board a bit strapped for cash. I don't think it's unfair to say that you would prefer to have some of that funding that's going to private schools come on over to uh, public schooling. Well, absolutely. That's been not just the position of Edmonton Public. It's been the position of the public, Catholic, and Francophone school boards across Alberta. We are by law required to accept 
um, all children. If you are Catholic living in the Hazeldean neighborhood, you have a designated Catholic school. If you are Francophone, same thing. And they can't turn you away no matter how you arrive at the door. And that's a really important distinction. And so Kenny has brought in a model that's further entrenched that Americanization into our system. Like when the federal government sent COVID relief money, instead of it being allocated to the public, and I'm using public as public Catholic Francophone schools, um, they actually siphoned it off and gave it to any student at any school. So you had some kids going to really uh, extreme religious private schools that have been actually going to court to stop GSAs. They got the same amount of funding as Max child or my child. I'm getting a sense of some chaffedness coming from you on some of these decisions. And I think all of it has come to a head in some of the budgetary decisions from the provincial government. Uh, you know, Kenny has said we are not cutting any education funding, while, of course, as we all know, and we've talked about in this podcast, in many ways, cutting education funding and leaving public school boards with significantly, significantly less. And one of the things that appeared on your blog this week in the reports for the upcoming February 9th public school meeting was an item that really caught my eye, which is about establishing an education levy. And I wanted you to talk me through this because when I read it, I, I, I blinked twice a few times and I'm like, wait, we can do this? I want to clarify that right there. There is no motion to move a levy. I'm not moving a levy. What I asked for was, do we actually have the power to do this? So, so just to clarify at the outset, I'm not doing a levy, but I was really surprised to find out that we were still able to. You know, sometimes you hear about like states that have old laws, like it's illegal to tie up a horse outside of a Safeway or something on a Thursday. And you're like, oh, uh, that, that law yeah. exists. It kind of felt like that. I was going through some legislation and because there had been a number of changes through the PCs and then the NDP and then the UCP. And, and I found this piece that there was still this special school levy on the books. And so, of course, I got curious and was like, well, how would this even work? So you could ask for a plebiscite. And if it passed, then you'd have the ability to, what, tack on a little surplus to everybody's next municipal tax bill? Yeah, basically. So there is this power that school boards have the ability to request an envelope of funding for a specified purpose um, on the condition it passes a municipal plebiscite. So the school board could, for instance, I'll just for the sake of argument, talk about Kenny cut $30 million from uh, our pre-kindergarten for vulnerable children. Some of the most vulnerable children with um, speech delays and, and uh, physical delays get, getting help at the, in the pre-kindergarten years. Kenny cut that 76%. We had to close 22 sites. Like it's undeniably probably the worst thing the UCP has done to Albertans, maybe de-indexing Aish. It was, it's just horrible, picking on the most vulnerable. So let's say we wanted to try and make that money up. Let's say we wanted to try and recover that $30 million for Edmonton Public Schools. Well, we would have to pass through the board that we request an amount, $30 million, for a designated purpose to help those children. And then that would be put forward to the uh, through a number of steps, which are detailed in the report, including uh, then putting it to the municipal voter. The voters would then decide. And um, it, for the sake of math, for this one, um, that $30 million would work out to approximately $5 per house per month, depending on the average home value of $368,000 per year. Because you know, if your house is worth more than that, you pay a little bit more. Your house is less than that, you pay a little bit less. So that if that passed, that would then raise the designated funds and go towards the school board. But it's not that simple. So First of all, you'd need to run a campaign to get this get this initiative over the ballot. You would need to as well 
um, there's some murkiness about how how it works between tax designations. So that 30 million would be only split by the people who designate their property taxes to the public system. And as you know, there's some who do public, some who do Catholic, some do undecided. So then if, say, for instance, there was a run and even if 25% of the people who are public shifted it to undecided, well, then we'd still still be trying to recover $30 million from that smaller amount of people. So you could see how very quickly this could just, it would become almost taxation by consent and it could be quite awkward. Then there's all these other questions about how it's assessed between business and residences. Then there's questions about, well, it would need to be renewed after four years. So the deeper I went into it, it appeared that, well, it looks like on the surface, school boards have a choice. If they need funding, they can just, you know, ask the voters and make the case. It's actually much more complicated. So at the end of the day, the provincial government is responsible for resourcing education. They need to do so. And it's not up to downloading to the municipal taxpayer as a way to recover these funding, no matter how critical the cause. In your blog post, you said we need the funds. Absolutely. And, you know, this isn't the right way to get it, as you've just explained. Um, but you said, quote, but at least we can say we looked under every rock. Exactly. We know we we know we pay for these kids. The question is, do we pay for them uh, when they're in pre-kindergarten or do we pay way more when they get into elementary and require even more supports and more complexity? And right. even potentially later in life, if they if they don't get the help they need, they can't complete high school and are more likely to have interactions with the health and the justice system. So we get the most bang for our buck in the early years. Science is, this is well documented and it's the best bang for your buck. But unfortunately, the UCP cut this and changed the rules, um, restricting who could get funding. So it's something we definitely want to draw attention to. And I was, you know, mischievously wondering if there was some lever, like we could do a plebiscite, like the cities are wondering, um, could they do a plebiscite on some important questions? Well, if if Jason Kenney could put federal government questions onto the provincial ballot, maybe there's a way that we as school boards could do something to raise awareness about these cuts affecting the most vulnerable kids in our community. So I think you make a pretty good case of why doing a plebiscite for this specific issue is a pretty risky play. And I can also think of, you know, Brexit passed. So referenda are not flawless exercises. What if parents not understanding the question, not understanding the implications of the question, vote no to giving these pre-kindergarten students the funding? That that could also be a problem. It's We've talked about this in the pod, on the podcast before. You don't necessarily want to govern by pure majority. You want elected leaders who understand the crux of the issues, the effects of the issues to make good informed decisions. And I'll and, uh, and I'll go one more. Like, I, I also have a little bit of a moral question here about, is it okay for us to vote on whether these children with learning challenges have their rights fulfilled or not? Do you know what I mean? Like, it feels just a little right. terrible Awkward. and immoral <laughs> and wrong. Like, yeah, like yeah. You should, it should be just funded. Let me float this out there because... While I agree with all of the above that, you know, asking this question probably isn't advisable, probably not the best solution, I am enthralled with this idea that you have this taxation power and that the school board can just levy some new taxes. The city of Edmonton has been asking for new taxation powers for time immemorial. So perhaps is there like a program at the Edmonton Public School Board that has cost like $250,000 that got cut and you can put a plebiscite question to add like a penny to each person's property tax bill? Because I understand that one part of this is raising the money for this program, but the other part is, you know, it's a voter education exercise. It's 
informing Edmontonian voters in the biggest way possible that there have been these cuts downloaded onto school boards by the province. And I think what better way than just adding a penny to each people's property tax bill? Has something like that been explored in the back of your mischievous mind? I would compare it to kind of like, um, what if what if Don Iveson added a penny to our tax bill to pay for permanent supportive housing? I mean, at the end of the day, like we, abs- the need is absolutely there and it needs to be addressed. But at some point, the other orders of government need to pick up the tab, whether it's two hundred fifty thousand or two hundred fifty million, and and that's part of my ongoing worry here that. The UCP is on one hand trying to say that they're they're cutting taxes and and uh, they're they're good stewards, but on the other hand, I mean, my my auto insurance went up forty bucks this month. The class sizes are getting bigger. Special needs kids are not getting support. Now we're going to have to take resources out of uh, say high schools to hire more education assistants in elementary schools. Like it's it's just it's it's a bit of the smoke and mirrors and. I, I worry a little bit about we need to keep our focus. We need to keep all of our sights on the province and on the ledge and and to some extent, the federal le- election as well. It, it's just really bizarre to still see this power because it, it sort of points to the bigger question about why do we have school boards at all? Everything has been consolidated to the province of Alberta in terms of like we talked at the outset. When do we get new schools? The province decides. When do we get new money the, for their schools to fix them? The province decides. Who signs the collective agreement about how how much money your teacher is paid and the classroom conditions that you experience? It's the province. The province has taken all of the authority, but they keep school boards around because they can say, well, talk to your local school trustee about your larger class size. Talk to your local school trustee about the school closure. Talk to your local school trustee about, well, why don't they do a levy? They have this power, but they really don't. I mean, it's it's like if you your neighborhood had neighborhood renewal, but people could just opt out of paying for it. Like that's not or the LRT, they could just opt out of paying for it. Like it doesn't it doesn't work like that. We are a community. We pay for things through fair taxation. And we need to have these bigger conversations about choices at the provincial level. Like it, it, the goal of keeping the $30 million war room while Edmonton children have lost $30 million in funding. So it's, it's, it's things like that that annoy me. But I also just want to go, to, go back to one other thing at the, at the outset here. It's important that your listeners understand that after, so back pre-1994, everybody paid their property taxes and the amount of money that came from education went to education. After 1994, the province consolidated this. And then so all of the education money collected across Alberta from property tax was consolidated into one pool and then sent to communities based on how many students they had. So it was fair that if you had 100 students, you received 100 envelopes of dollars. The UCP changed that and they brought in this block funding model that basically has rewarded the smaller schools that are shrinking with a block of funding, um, but the larger schools that are growing don't get the same growth anymore. So we have a reality now that since the UCP have brought in what's called the weighted moving average, a student in Calgary and Edmonton receives less per student than a student in rural Alberta. A student in Edmonton receives less than a student in Calgary. A student in Edmonton public receives less than a student at Edmonton Catholic. All of this to say they're the same children living in the same neighborhood, but because of this model that the UCP have brought in, it has disproportionately harmed the schools with the most children, and I would say the most complex children with the greatest need. And so these are the questions that school boards need to wrestle with and Albertans need to know about. Right off the offset, I said, you know, we get 
too close to provincial politics when we talk about school boards. And oh boy, do we. But like you said, this is all of this is inextricably linked in the upcoming election. And maybe it's too early for crazy season, but these are ballot questions that whether through actual referenda on the ballot or through their choices in councillors, through their choices in who will work with the provincial government, these are choices that are going to be made in October. So um, thanks, Michael. You've given us a lot to think about, um, a lot to talk about. And of all the school trustees, you're the only one who has reached out to the show and said, hey, I got something interesting I want to talk about. So thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, I think I think your listeners will see the tie-ins. Surplus school sites weren't the only thing that council was talking about this week. Uh, they didn't, in fact, have a surplus of dollars to hand over to the High Level Line Society. We talked about this project in the past, the project to establish a linear park that comes roughly from the northern edge of the Strathcona neighborhood across the High Level Bridge and then, you know, follows the line that the historic streetcar currently follows and established sort of like the High Line in New York, a linear park that really activates that neighborhood, activates the bridge and makes it really incredible pedestrian, cyclist and active transportation connection. And the organization was looking for $85,000 for an executive director and council said, not today, friends. That's right. The organization is looking for some operational funding to keep going with the work that they're doing. Uh, council or committee rather looked at this and decided that due to COVID-19 and the financial struggles that have resulted from the pandemic, they don't have the money to do this. The mayor said, we're just not in a position right now to put dollars on the table. And this was really interesting to me because when I read the report, as I always do before the meetings, I thought there's no way this doesn't pass. Like it was very much written as if administration, you know, said, we're going to give them money and here are the two options for how you do that. Um, we can make a special grant for them or you can use the reserve fund for, for council to do that. But, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't really a question of not giving them money. But ultimately, council decided not to give them any money. I do wonder, and like you said, it is a bit weird that administration was so forward about this and council said no usually you know if administration is giving a strong recommendation council just goes for it especially yeah. for something as small as eighty five thousand dollars but you know pandemic times being what they are budgets being tight i can understand council's political motivation to not want to spend money that appears frivolous well is that it or or is it and i hate to say this is it because of the election coming up is anyone going to vote for you because you voted for Highline or not vote for you because you voted for Highline? I mean, it, it's stupid that we're in that situation already, but that seems like plausible reason here. I I hate to say it, but you have a good point, especially because the two councillors that would be most affected and the two councillors whose wards would support High Level Line are Scott McKean, retiring, and Ben Henderson, who, despite his best protests, is retiring. So, you know, there's... There's no real advantage for the other councillors to get behind this downtown-centric project right. for just $85,000. I do wonder, because if I'm in a city administration, I think it might have been a shoe-in. I do wonder if administration had did something different where instead of offering to fund High Level Line, they just said, hey, you know, we've got a project management office. We've got a bunch of urban planners. We'll give you a full-time employee. We'll give you a warm body to help the organization push forward at no real cost to the city. I wonder if that would have passed. Yeah, maybe. I think some of the councillors, Ben Henderson in, in particular, kind of like the idea that this is not at the city, that this is, you know, a, an independent volunteer 
imaginative organization that has brought this forward, um, I think they might feel like it's a negative thing for the project if it were to be moved into the city, even though it seems like it's very aligned with what administration wants to do. I do have a bit of reticence that we're pushing so much off to volunteers. Like this is literally about building a linear park on top of a bridge. This doesn't seem like something that like a scrappy youth organization should put together. This seems like pretty core infrastructure, pretty core city building. I like that the idea came grassroots, but at some point the city has to say, okay, we're doing this. Yeah. And I guess it's not right now that they're pulling the trigger, but you wait too long before pulling the trigger and these volunteers are going to burn out and they're going to go somewhere else. Yeah, I think that's a very real risk. I think uh, the chair of the High Level Line Society, Jillian Thompson, was was pretty diplomatic in uh, her response to this, basically saying, oh, it's you know good to have council and administration support for this in writing. But, you know, probably what she's thinking is like, if I had to choose between operational funding and capital funding, I want the capital funding. So what's next for the high level line? Is this going to stall out the project forever? Or are there some next steps on the book? Well, certainly the organization is going to keep moving forward and and try to uh, continue to push the project ahead. And the urban planning committee will get an updated report basically in one year. All right. Well, normally, Troy, you are the one that transitions away from things, but I'm going to do this one because I think we need to address some tweets, some posts that you've made on the internet recently uh, for our listeners. Jeez, I hope this podcast isn't what Troy tweeted this week. (laughs) (laughs) Just this week. Uh, So first, I wanted to ask you uh, about an endorsement that you made for Ashley Salvador. Yeah, some people have given me this feedback as well, you know, like, hey, you're a journalist, we rely on you to give us updates. Why are you taking a stance? You know, is this really appropriate? And I think absolutely yes. And my thoughts on this are, first, Ashley is unquestionably one of the most singular positive driving forces in our city. Council or not, we've talked about her on the podcast. She was instrumental in the push to reduce and eliminate parking minimums. She has a whole organization about garage and garden suites and increasing our density in ways that don't impact mature communities in significant negative fashions. In terms of urban planning, she's been a shoe-in. And I think as someone who people rely on, people come to me for my opinions and I give them facts. I allow them to make their own decisions. But at some point, my recommendation carries some value. And there are some good candidates in Métis And I think all of them pale in comparison to Ashley Salvador. And to not say that aloud, I think, does a disservice to what we're doing here. So I tweeted it, and I will endorse other people in the election. If it's a toss-up election, if there's positive aspects, and I still will cover other candidates in Métis and share the positive aspects because it's an election. But I'm not going to be immune to having opinions. I'm not going to be immune to sharing what the best thing available to Edmonton is because that's the point of this coverage. It's to make the election easier. And I think in Métis, I hope I've made the election easier for some people already. I think it's really interesting that perception that journalists need to be completely objective. Karen, my Tappard Edmonton co-founder, and I often talk about, you know, the view from nowhere that Jay Rosen has popularized and how this is a really flawed way of thinking about it. And it's really also a sort of blip in history because early newspapers and things were, of course, heavily, heavily biased 
in favor of the opinions of their owners. Like they were basically mouthpieces for the people that owned them. Um, this idea that they don't take a stand and that their journalists are completely, you know, uh, objective is is flawed thinking, and it really only captures a small part of history. So I'm not opposed to having opinions. I think uh, it's important to declare your biases and to be upfront about that and to be transparent. And that's certainly the approach that we try to take it uh, at Taproot uh, with the other work that we do, you know, for publishing something. We're not trying to persuade you of anything. We're trying to inform you, make that information available to you and allow you to make a, an informed decision. But we also know that if you do your homework, you're going to understand that issue better than anyone else. And you should be in a position to say that, no, I'm sorry, climate change is real, right? So I'm not entirely opposed with you uh, endorsing Ashley. I Maybe it's a bit early, but... I think the other piece that you had mentioned right there is that, you know, the people who think that, you know, journalists need to be impartial and, oh, you know, I can't put an opinion here because I'm a journalist. It's the same thing where you look down in the States in the past four years where Republicans aren't playing by the rules and Democrats are and Democrats lose. If you look at the media landscape, sure, individual journalists may not be endorsing candidates, but when has post-media ever not endorsed a conservative candidate in an election? Right. Our news organizations do endorsements in Alberta, and the only voices that are absent from the endorsements are the ones that are truly looking for positive change, in my opinion. So I think, again, when you're playing by a set of rules that it is clear no one else is playing by, you're losing. All right. So another thing I wanted to ask you about then was not an endorsement, perhaps the opposite of an endorsement. Uh, you wrote a blog post about Cheryl Watson, who we've talked about on the show a number of times. She was the first uh, person to register to run for mayor in the upcoming election. And you called her uh, initial policy announcement uninspiring and her campaign unfocused. Why did you feel the need to write this? It hurt me to write this post because Cheryl Watson is a big supporter of the podcast. She has reached out to us in the past then said really great episode or various other encouraging things because she's just like a listener in her own time. But in the same way that I have opinions and I can use that to justify my endorsement of candidates, I'm not going to give preferential treatment to my friends. And if any other candidate had declared they were running for mayor, spent three and a half months developing a platform because they had given us nothing to run on, and launched with an esoteric policy piece that doesn't materially affect the lives of Edmontonians and doesn't appear to understand the mechanisms by which council operates or how to solve them, which is my read of the policy, I think it's my duty to point that out. And that's what I did. And to Cheryl Watson's credit, she took the criticisms in stride. She responded and gave me public comment to add to the blog post. But it's another facet of the coverage. Um, I'm going to be honest in the upcoming year, and I'm going to be honest about who I support and why. And I'm also going to be honest about when people who I've had a relationship with in the past say something that would give me pause in any other candidate. I'm going to bring that up, support or otherwise. So we've not talked about the policy that she announced, and I don't think we're going to on the show. And, you know, there's definitely some concerns with it that I would that I would have as well. So maybe it's not super effective. But this idea that you can't run for council, you can't run for mayor, if you're just going to start by listening, sounds wrong to me. We don't disagree on much, Troy, but I'm not sure I agree with your take on this. I mean, surely we want candidates 
who are listening to constituents, who are listening to people and trying to learn what is important to the voters and the people that they're ultimately going to end up serving, um, who's who people who are open to different perspectives and viewpoints. Like if you launch your campaign, you've got it all figured out and you're not willing to, you know, incorporate the views of the people you're going to serve. Isn't that a problem? Maybe, but I think there's two different things you're talking about there. One is running for council and one is running for mayor. Council is a much lower bar. Mayor is you're leading the city. So to run for council on a platform of listening and bubbling up your constituents' views, sure, that's something you can definitely start with. But to run for mayor with nothing, sure, you can let your policy influence and you can say, hey, I'm supportive of affordable housing. But what that policy looks like, you know, where we're going to put it, I'm listening to Edmontonians. Mm -hmm. But Cheryl Watson has given us nothing to run on, nothing about what she supports as a candidate. And I think if you don't have that information when you're running for mayor, then you're not ready to run for mayor. If there's nothing that makes you passionate, if there's nothing that makes you you and makes you the best candidate that you can put out there right off the bat, I don't think you're ready to run for mayor. Um, and if you're choosing to hide that, I think that's an ill-advised campaign strategy because I think that lowers the bar for potential mayoral candidates. In the last election, when I ran abysmally against Mike Nickel, Mike Nickel didn't have a platform, didn't have any policy until about five or six days before the election. And by then, you know, people had already had the signs, the momentum had already changed. So like materially, this does change. And the more we make it acceptable for people to run on nothing, I think the worse we influence future elections. What Mike Nickel did have was name recognition. And it's only February, very early in February. Isn't isn't this just about name recognition? I mean, you've said on Twitter yourself, anytime you put out any kind of policy thing, once you're a candidate, the media are going to pick it up. Cheryl got lots of play, Global CTV, for her announcement. They didn't obviously know enough to look at what the policy was. They didn't question it in any way. It was just like, Cheryl, who's running for mayor, announced that she would do this. I mean, isn't that kind of the objective early on? Get that name recognition up? Yeah, sure. What you just outlined was a cynical play that plays on an uninformed media just reposting press releases. And that's another reason why I thought it was critically important to make this post, because if a campaign can think I can issue a press release on anything without vetting it for facts, without vetting it for usefulness, without vetting it by people who look at policy with a critical eye, and I can get positive play, I think that leads to much, much worse campaigns overall. So I think putting a stake in the sand and saying, there's at least one person in the city who, if I put out a press release for my campaign, will look at it with a critical eye. I think that gets us better candidates in the future. I think that's a healthy thing. It gets us informed voters too, right? Precisely. Not just better candidates. There are plenty of things in that post that people can reasonably disagree with. And, you know, there are plenty of people who think that Cheryl's policy was great and all the power to them. If they got to that point by reading my blog post and saying, nah, Troy's being dumb here. Perfect. I've done my job and I'm happy. Okay, last one I want to ask you about. Uh, you were away, you came back, and while you were coming back, you were sending out, I guess, what we would now call Troy tweets on the internet. Uh, and I want to read one for our listeners. Uh, it's not an audio problem. Sometimes I just let at MasterMac talk instead of me, and that's why it doesn't sound as good. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> look, if we look back at the past six minutes of the podcast, I'm looking at the waveforms. There's a lot more for me than there are for you. <laughs> it's all good.
All right, I'm done grilling you. And such such grilling it was. And I think this is important. The podcast, as we get into crazy season, we're going to grill candidates just like we grilled Troy. And if a candidate says something that we don't think holds up, we'll ask the hard questions. But if a candidate says something that tracks, we might just let it slide. You know, if a candidate says, I think Edmonton is a car-focused city, fine. Uh, I don't think we need to question that viewpoint. I do think we need to question if a city manager says such a thing. And <laughs> I'm letting you know, listener, we we didn't let that one slip past us without noticing. No. But we are way over time for this week. So I think the one thing that we have to get out of the way is making sure we get funding for this over time. Uh, so let's... Let's talk about the ECF. Yes, this episode is brought to you by the Well Endowed podcast, which is from the Edmonton Community Foundation. We've talked about it many times before. It's hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink and produced by Lisa Pruden. The podcast explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The ECF helps people create endowment funds. The podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. Episode 87 is the final installment in the Trailhead series, which looked at the history of urban planning in Edmonton. So if you listen to our podcast, you might like that one. You can check it out at thewellendowedpodcast.com. And that's all for this week. Uh, We'll have more next week and we'll be on time. Uh, I promise I won't disappear into the ether and leave you all in the lurch. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And this is the Dave Berta Podcast. Oh, no. Well, at least our podcast does not have Kenny's chief of staff on it. All right. Stop recording. (laughs) All right. (laughs)